Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 54 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today is Dr. Peter Stansky. I don't think, Pete, I've seen you since, uh, you know, maybe actually, Pete, you tell me when. When was the last time we actually crossed paths that wasn't in a virtual form? Hi, Shane. Hi, listeners. Wow, it has been a number of weeks, Shane, I, as you may know. And uh, I've taken some time off. So I headed off to the US and spent some time in LA, in New York. Loved the place, especially New York City. Um, the whole family and I walked everywhere. We did 20,000 steps a day, which is uh, way too many Ks, I think, for uh, for my legs. And uh, I may have even lost some weight while I was away. So uh, after coming back to the backlog of all things tech and customers, um, it's been a lot of fun. I've been uh, uh, speaking at a number of events, in fact, the Australian Financial Review. I talked about tech hype. Uh, and just the other day, I was on stage at the Advantech IoT event talking about the future of the edge. So uh, busy, busy, busy. Mm, I uh, love to hear what the future of the edge is. I will tune in. So look, this guy isn't just a figurehead. I feel the call from you, Pete, one evening, getting your hands dirty, building a gaming rig for your son. Is it finally working now? It is finally working. And uh, thank you, Sue, for all of your help. Uh, it's been a few years since I ended up building a PC. So uh, I need to call upon your expertise once in a while. Unfortunately, we didn't solve it. Uh, it was resolved uh, the following morning. So uh, yeah, lots of fun. But I did actually outsource the, uh, the bill of materials to my son, Ethan, uh, who spent a lot of time uh, sourcing his parts. So uh, yeah, we re-gutted re- our old PC uh, and put in a whole new machine. Uh, he's got about 15 terabytes of storage, which is uh, not quite the snowball, uh, but it's not bad for a, for a home thing. But uh, the main purpose for that, by the way, was I'm really passionate about education and kids. Um, so that's part of my um, sort of home way of getting my uh, kids into more tech. But uh, I want to do a big call out to RoboGals, who I've also brought into my son's schools in the past. And uh, uh, this is a great organization which started in Australia, which inspired over 50,000 girls worldwide uh, to consider a career in engineering. Uh, they don't just teach girls, they come into schools and uh, there's probably a chapter near you. So go check them out, Shane, because uh, I'm really passionate and I think you are too about you know making sure the next generation of our tech leaders um, are being created as we speak, like today. Yeah, totally. I'm sure our kids will soon surprise us. So 15 terabytes of data, I'm impressed by that. I don't even think I have 15 terabytes of stuff. So good on you, Ethan. So Pete, good to have you around and we're going to do probably a little bit of a hybrid show this week. So it's nearing the end of August and sticking with recent tradition, we're going to pause following our episode tailored for sysadmins, sysengineers and network engineers that Dean and I covered in the last episode. Boy, that was a bit of fun. But this show, we're going to come at you with a raft of short, sharp and important updates that have occurred in the month of August. And obviously we'll cover them at the level you expect from Tech Chat. But Pete, there's always a bit of a but a pause, a caveat here, as today I want to step out of the lens of AWS and run a section that is more, I guess, like a public service announcement. Yeah, and uh, look, I'm going to have to trust you here, given that you've taken over the show now, uh, but this is uh, a show about AWS, just to yeah, remind you. know what they say about people who say, trust me, right? But Pete, you know, trust me. Right, 
Okay, let's go. So before we do that, let's quickly run through some news. Awesome. So um, this is a show for builders. And speaking of builders, there's a whole bunch of coming up interesting events. For example, in Australia, we have the AWS Community Day, which is a free full-day event dedicated to AWS user groups and meetups. Uh, and it's really for the community, by the community. So we're going to be uh, showcasing many and um uh, well-known uh, local community speakers, uh, influentials and innovators. Uh, and we're going to have a whole bunch of topics ranging from AI and machine learning and serverless containers, VR, and a whole raft more. Uh, and this is the second, uh, I guess, you know, event we've run here in Australia with the aim to inspire and educate uh, developers in the IT communities. Um, and it's free. So there's a uh, uh, free hands-on labs and demos available. Plenty of opportunities to network with uh, AWS experts in the in the community. Uh, it's in the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Center, and it's on on the August thirtieth yeah. this year. Yeah, I love that, Pete. That you know, this is ran by the community for the community, and I've even got a few of my customers who'll be speaking there on the day. Community Heroes, awesome event. I'll pop down and hope to see people there. Me too. And it's, it's actually kind of cool to see the community actually run these events themselves. Yes, we're supporting them and helping them out, but fundamentally it is uh, all them, not us. Uh, and the spirit of builders, also on August 27th and 28th, we have the AWS Builder Online Series, which is also a free online event hosted by, in this case, AWS experts. So most of us are covering core AWS concepts and best practices. Uh, we talk about, uh, you know, provide a whole bunch of experience to help you to start your first First workload on AWS uh, and the topics that we're going to cover are things like web apps, uh, DevOps and databases and security. So perhaps this may not be for the uh, most seasoned uh, tech chat listeners that are out there, but it's also a great place for those who are starting out. So uh, uh, you will find tech chats on Gabe and yourself delivering the content. Yeah, that was a fun session. I actually recorded it last week. It's available in many time zones and in many languages. I've actually surprised myself, Pete, with my Japanese. Kaching, all right. Konnichiwa. 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 Yeah, that wasn't me. But it'd be interesting to see it overlaid in multiple languages. So look, check it out, register today. I spoke about the other paths. So listeners, if you do manage to see this, drop us a message, AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. Tell me what the other paths is and I'll send something away. So summit season cool. is still on. I'm sure we'll start talking about reInvent soon. Heck, you know, maybe we'll be there. Who knows? But for now, summits. Indeed. So we have uh, coming up uh, Mexico City in Mexico on the 29th of August, just around the corner. Uh, we have the Public Sector Summit in uh, New Delhi, India. And also uh, I'd like to give uh, some good news. Uh, and uh, that is not a direct price cut, but a performance improvement, uh, which is a bit like a price cut, Shane. Uh, so for those of you who are using Spark out there, you can now achieve three times better Spark performance with EMR 5.2. So basically, you can use Spark uh, 2.4.3, Presto uh, 0.22, Apache Hive 2.3.5, and Apache Tez uh, 0.92 on Amazon EMR release 5.25. So this is pretty awesome because uh, this release also includes two new performance uh, optimizations that improve Spark performance, like I said, up to three times uh, over EMR 2.4. And that's because we've actually tweaked the Bloom filter joins and the optimized join reordering functionality. And uh, to demystify what that actually means is uh, the Bloom filter join filters table joins dynamically to only include the relevant rows. So this reduces the amount of data processed by Spark, uh, which effectively reduces the query times. 
And the other one is the optimized join reordering, which also dynamically reorders the joins to execute smaller joins with filters first, which therefore reduces the processing requirements for a very large data set, Shane. So uh, that's, uh, you know, summits and almost price reductions all yeah, in one. Look, and, and just on that, additionally, we've updated the default Spark configuration for memory optimized R4 instances to achieve better CPU and memory utilization. This update improves Spark runtime performance by 1.5x. And obviously numbers are one thing. So see the EMR performance documentation, which details the benchmarking methodology that we use as your mileage may vary. Absolutely. And also on in terms of um, <clears throat> regions, uh, we still have 22 of them, uh, with the recent one being added in Bahrain, uh, which takes us to basically 69 availability zones. And also our edge locations have added one more to bring a total of 188, uh, with the first edge location being added in Israel, Tel Aviv, to be precise. And uh, also with this uh, new edge location, Cloud Fund will deliver up to, so we think, uh, and tested it, 75% uh, reduction in latency for content delivered to your viewers in Israel. So fundamentally, uh, this now means that CloudFront is in 70 cities across 31 countries worldwide. There we go. So Pete, I want to try something different here. As I mentioned before, I want to run a segment not on a new AWS service or a new feature, but more a public service announcement. So Pete, you have more of a pedigree than myself as a developer, so I'm interested on your point of view, which I'm sure I'll no doubt get soon. But in working in software shops personally for at least 15 years prior to coming aboard on Amazon, I want to spend about 10 minutes talking to you about SDLC or the software development lifecycle through the lens of Lambda, our favorite serverless compute engine. The reason I bring this up is one of the trends I see in the field, maybe even yourself from your ivory tower, is serverless. You know, it's a thing, it's not going away. As customers move up the stack and embrace more event-driven architectures with services like Lambda, there's a trade-off, as there are with most things in IT. So you alluded to that you uh, you want to have your cake and eat it too, and a whole enchilada with the cherry totally. on top. Look, I think you can, but within reason. You know, you just need to eat in moderation. Maybe do some exercise. And obviously, I'm talking in reals here. Lambda is letting you run your code without having to provision and manage servers. But in exchange for this, you need to ensure you are working within our runtime policy, to which you can find in our documentation. Worth read if you are leveraging Lambda. Actually, let me rephrase that. If you are either using Lambda today or planning to use Lambda, this document needs to be understood and consumed. ADS Lambda runtimes are built around a combination of operating system, programming language, and software libraries that are subject to maintenance and security updates. When a component or a runtime is no longer supported for security updates, Lambda deprecates the runtime. And before I hand the mic over to Pete, I can see he's waiting patiently, so let's quickly talk about this policy. Deprecation occurs in two phases. During the first phase, you can no longer create functions that use a deprecated runtime. For at least 30 days, you can continue to update existing functions that use deprecated runtimes. But after this period, both function creation and updates are disabled permanently. However, the function continues to be available to process invocation events. So Pete, level setting done, how do you approach the use of services such as AWS Lambda? And look, you, you touched upon SDLC, which is a software development lifecycle. It's a term that we don't often hear anymore, uh, but it's still well and truly alive out there. It's a, it's a process that many IT shops follow today for building their applications, right? So the software industry designs, develops, and tests, hopefully, high-quality code before they ship it. So if you break this up into a cycle, it's, it's a bit circular. Uh, it's like a bit of a flywheel, and it covers everything from 
obviously the initial inception of the idea, the planning, uh, the development, the actual testing and debugging and building and deploying and finally the maintenance of your actual applications, right? So SDLC, it's a circle, right? It's like the circle of life, so to speak, uh, for your applications, right? And the idea is that... Uh, when you look through the lens of Lambda and the SDLC, there is a, a less of a choice uh, of things that you have to focus and influence um, when it comes to running an application. So I know in the past uh, I've been in environments where you know there may have been um, a patch that needs to be applied or a framework upgrade for whatever reason, uh, which may actually uh, result in uh, breaking something with your Lambda. Uh, now, you do have a choice, right? So what do you do here, Shane? You want to cover that off? So look, before we talk what you do, I want to go back to understanding the Lambda support policy. So in exchange for all the goodness that Lambda provides, and it really is good stuff, you are relinquishing some control, you know, control of the underlying frameworks and runtimes. And whilst you may make a decision to run the risk of running a deprecated framework, you know, in your on-premises environment, we obviously run services like Lambda on a global scale on shared infrastructure, and it's something we just can't do. So what do you do, Pete? So there are a few options and let's talk about them. And just because we are talking about them, it doesn't mean it's something I would recommend with my solution architect and customer hat on. They are just options to get yourself out of a bind. So option one, and I'm going to call this own it. You know, if your app is in Node.js or .NET Core, you need to own it. But Shane, what does it mean by owning it? What does that mean? So I mean by own it, like, you know, if this is your core, this is your application, you should be vested into the language and support policies from the specific vendors. So whilst we're going to notify you about deprecation, you know, 30 days prior, this isn't ideal. Lambda or Amazon in this scenario, we are just a messenger here. And really, you should be well aware that a supported version is going to be deprecated, not by us, by the software vendor. So your mileage may vary depending on the framework we're talking about. But usually we're talking really old versions with multiple LTS versions in between. So if we look through the lens of Node, so Node.js, for example, to which we spoke about Pete a few episodes ago when we deprecated Node 4.3, I believe, the current version at that stage was 10 with version 8 sitting in between. So, you know, there was, you know, a jump to be able to go to. Many organizations may codify a policy when using higher order services. So perhaps uh, you need to think about a policy uh, so that uh, any core product that you are using cannot be more than one version of the latest LTS version. I remember LTS is the uh, long-term support version of that particular runtime, right? So either way, I think you are dispensing a bit of tough love here, Shane. You know, ignorance is, as they say, bliss. But in the case of Lambda, it's not going to work out too well for you if you try to keep your hand in the sand here. So it's also worth calling an option two here. And, uh, and uh, earlier... This year, or perhaps might have been late last year, Lambda added support for custom runtimes, which means uh, the runtime is a program that runs your Lambda functions handler method uh, when a function is actually invoked for you. So you can include a runtime in your functions deployment package in the form of an executable file named a bootstrap. Uh, so the runtime is responsible for running the function's startup code, uh, reading the handler names from an environment variable, and uh, reading invocation events from the Lambda Runtime API. So the runtime passes the event data to your function handler uh, and posts a response from the handler back to the actual Lambda environment. So your custom code uh, runs in a standard Lambda executable environment. It can be a shell script or a script in a different programming language running on Amazon Linux or a binary executable uh, that's compiled for Amazon Linux as well. Uh, and there's also a tutorial on how to set these up, Shane. Uh, so you can select this in the Lambda console when you deploy your uh, Lambda Yes, uh, we actually covered this in a prior episode. So what this means, as the name implies, you can run your own custom runtime. This is where I'm saying, yes, it's an option. 
but should you, you know, think hard before you go down this path. Unsure if you're following the breadcrumbs I'm laying down here, Pete. So whilst this was designed to run runtimes that we don't support like PHP, it can also be used to run deprecated frameworks. Yeah, look, absolutely. It's a, it's an option here. It may not be ideal as an option, uh, but it may buy you some time whilst you're refactoring your code. And uh, if it isn't compatible with the newer version of the framework. So again, uh, we speak about levers in AWS and being able to give you uh, a well-rounded platform with lots of uh, hopefully perfection all over the place. Uh, but this is just an option that we just brought forward. The last option is maybe at the point in time where you are in your cloud journey, you know, Lambda may not just be for you. You know, we know that everyone is on their own unique journey. And if you lack, let me say, the maturity or let's say discipline and SDL hygiene, what can you do, Pete? Well, that's just it. It's just, it's a technology, right? It's a, it's a most popular thing that may be shiny. Uh, it may not be right for you, right? So we need to think about how you're going to support it, operationalize it. Uh, so there may need to be some thinking required, perhaps some re-architecting uh, to better understand the impact to your application and also to your business as well. Because if your apps stop, your business will stop as well. So a couple of things to think about, and I'll say a couple, maybe 12, a dozen. <laughs> uh, so hopefully many of you have come across the 12 factors when you think about building your application. So when you look at 12 factors, which is around, you know, your code base, its dependencies, the configuration environments, you know, uh, additional you know, services that it requires, you know, your build and release and run approaches, um, you know, your processes for the execution of the application. Hopefully it's being stateless, being Lambda. Uh, thinking about things like port binding, concurrency, disposability, you know, dev prod parity, logs and admin processes. Some of these actually uh, are taken away. The heavy lifting goes away, like, you know, logging and administration and, you know, some of these things on scalability and port binding. Some of these things are taken care of for you. But the reality is you really need to think about, you know, 12 factors, uh, perhaps, you know, the elements that are important. And I guess what we're trying to bring you back to is, Think about the runtimes. Think about the uh, the code base dependencies uh, and the configuration of your environment. You know, you no longer have to focus on all twelve things when you're building serverless, uh, but you do need to, uh, you know, be honest with yourself to make sure that you know you are taking care of your business and you are running secure and hopefully running fast on the uh, latest and greatest runtime. That's well said. So yes, 12-factor apps. And look, this is often real-world advice. We, as solution architects, you know, those trusted advisors, we dispense this advice. And it's obviously, we don't dispense advice for the sake of doing tech. Absolutely. So think of the business uh, or think of the real-world optics uh, and what actually sets in here. You know, there are also other options for you to consider when you uh, want to have more control over the runtime, such as, you know, uh, ECS, EKS, or even EC2, so different Amazon services to run your coding containers. Uh, but in exchange for that, you get extra control. Uh, you know, you have to do more yourself you to deal with, you know, the scaling, the patching, the config management, uh, some of the things that are already done for you uh, by serverless. But again, you need to consider and evaluate, you know, uh, the quantity of effort that you're going to go into, the heavy lifting, I guess, as we refer to it quite often in AWS, uh, for, you know, building and addressing all of your hygiene issues uh, in this case. Yeah. So look, in short, Lambda is amazing and very powerful. It really is. But ensure you understand your application hygiene and where you sit in your given framework vendor's lifecycle. Awesome. All right. So that's that's serverless. Uh, there's some other cool things happening, um, and a quick one, but a good one is uh, is that uh, you want to uh, you know have extra functionality, and we release lots of functionality to the masses, don't we, Shane? 
We do. And I've read this and I was like, finally, you know, it's like, you know, select star from table and returning lots of stuff here. You know, this doesn't have a heap of where clauses. You know, it's a huge record set of customers that this is going to apply to and a really good win. Okay, Pete, what is it? Awesome. So you can now attach multiple target groups to your Amazon ECS services that are running on either EC2 or Fargate. Right. This is a this is huge, uh, in our opinion. Uh, so target groups, by the way, are used to route requests to one or more registered targets behind the load balancer when using it. So attaching multiple target groups to your service generally allows you to uh, simplify infrastructure code, reduce the costs, and often also increase manageability. Uh, You can go from a one-to-one relationship between an application to a one-to-many now. So previously, you could attach one target group to an ECS service, and this meant that you had to create multiple copies of the service for everything that you did if you were connecting, say, from multiple different egress points, such as the big bad internet or perhaps from your corporate intranet. Yeah, so you know we're really talking different... FQDNs or fully qualified domain names. So you may be using an ECS service to serve front-end traffic and another service to serve back-end traffic. Yes, so now you can attach multiple target groups per ECS service, and this opens up a world of options to you, uh, such as um, you know you can maintain a single ECS service that can serve both traffic from the, like I said, the internal network, that's quite safe, uh, as well as the external load balancers, uh, that, that service, uh, the big bad internet, uh, and support multiple path-based routes in your application that need to be exposed uh, to that one particular port running a service. Mm. So with most things, like our previous topic of Lambda, there are things that you need to be aware of. So here they are. Multiple target groups are only supported when you use the application load balancer or network load balancer. So kind of obvious, but worth calling out. The next one's probably a little less obvious. Multiple target groups are only supported when the service uses the rolling update, so ECS deployment controller type. If you're using the code deploy or an external deployment controller, multiple target groups are not yet supported. And lastly, Multiple target groups are supported for services containing tasks using both Fargate and EC2 launch types. At this stage, no EKS. The ECS documentation has a few example service definitions so you can get your JSON on. Yeah, so there are a couple of options. There's really three, right? One of them really is uh, having a separate load balancer for both your internal and your external traffic, uh, which is kind of cool. You can have the same port, but uh, that's that's kind of old school. The other option really is to be able to use uh, multiple ports from uh, to, to, to point to the same container. So basically, uh, you can have port 8080 or port, say, 5000 uh, pointing to the container running a service. And and finally, the other option really is uh, exporting, you know, multiple ports from multiple containers uh, to your end users. So, yeah, lots of options there, Shane. Uh, lots of uh, uh, different mechanisms now available uh, to be able to reuse and access your uh, your containers. Yeah. Look, before we move on, as I just mentioned, there's probably people who may ask, is it available for EKS? The answer is no at the moment. It's purely an ECS affair. So Pete, if you've looked into the AWS console, you may have or may not have noticed in the sea of services an addition earlier this month. I was about to chime in with the obligatory comment like, hey, you don't log into the console these days, but given you're building PCs, maybe you've established a bit of credit again. 
<laughs> no, I was just in there just just literally yesterday, uh, playing with workmail. So uh, setting some extra email aliases because I run my personal inbox on there. So uh, I dog food and I use a console. Sometimes the console is a bit quicker than trying to find the CLI commands. <laughs> but I digress. I look up. I I'm glad that I'm, I'm cool again, Shane, in your books. Um, and I thought that uh, what you may be talking about is something that we uh, pre-announced at reInvent 2018. Would I be right? You in would be. That? So not just a figurehead here. You are right. Let's talk about. AWS Lake Formation. So the marketing spiel, you know, it's a new managed service to help you build a secure data lake in days. So data lakes aren't a new thing. People have been creating them for ages. But just as the saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Just for the record, we love all animals on Tech Chat. There are many ways to create a data lake. Is this what you, sorry, is this, sorry, is this what you say we skin them all equally? Is that what was you trying to infer here? I'm inferring, you know, there are multiple ways to create a data lake. <laughs> all right, cool. On with the show. On with the show. So look, Pete, I bet in your time, in the field of companies that you were working with, you know, you probably have been created many different types of data lakes. You know, tell me what they were like back then. Uh, wow, great question. Uh, Tons, in fact. I've spent a lot of time with customers um, designing, uh, deploying, and rolling them out and uh, living the aftermath in some cases of uh, doing it poorly as well. Uh, so talk about data lakes. Um, when you think about it, uh, everyone is heading now towards a data lake because the business driver for it generally tends to be a uh, single view of the customer. The trouble is the way that people get there quite often is a non-standardized deployment or a way of getting it. So uh, there's a lot of complexity and time consumption needed to actually think about it, uh, build it, uh, deploy it, secure it, uh, start to actually manage it as well. It can take months in many cases. Um, and uh, even when you build a data like in the cloud, it still requires many manual and time-consuming steps, such as setting up your storage or S3 buckets, you know, moving and clearing, preparing, cataloging your data because you might have, you know, petabytes of data sitting around uh, and you want to use that. Uh, also configuring and enforcing security policies for each service that's going to access that information and applications because, you know, you don't want a, a data breach. You don't want your private information getting out to the wrong hands. Uh, and often uh, you've got to manually configure uh, access for your users and applications. So there's a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, this, this not only sounds like a lot of work, but if you quantify that in terms of time, effort and cost, you know, people don't work for free, this all starts to add up. So you mentioned the lack of standards and this is where I see lake formation coming in or control tower and other services come into play. What lake formation allows you to do is, you know, identify, ingest, clean and transform data. So you can move, store, catalog and clean your data faster. You can enforce security policies across multiple services, you know, governance, security, audit policies all in one place. You can gain and manage new insights, you know, build that data catalog and describe available data sets and their appropriate business users. You know, this is, you know, this catalog makes your users more productive by helping them find the right data set to analyze and give you, as you just mentioned before, Pete, you know, that single view of customer. Boom, Shane. You just described the end game for what lake formation does, right? Um, but let me just dive into it just a, a fraction um, below the surface. So think about it from, uh, and if you were to draw it from left to right on a whiteboard as we do as architects, you know, the first thing you draw is the ingest and organize. You know, you want to be able to automatically ingest, clean, encrypt, right? Um, and register existing, for example, if you're already in the cloud, S3 bucket content, including your log data from things like maybe CloudTrail, CloudFront, your ELB access logs, which we just talked about. And then you want to be able to then uh, secure and control that information, right? So you want to define the controls that provide the right data to the right users, groups, roles, applications, and systems. Um, and make sure that you're also... Um, 
have flexible access to databases and tables and columns, which may actually require, you know, column permission and field uh, granularity from a security perspective. And once you've got that under control, then you want to ensure that you can, you know, allow users to, uh, to collaborate and use that in infrastructure, right? So be able to search and discover, um, you know, the, the catalogs that you've got, the metadata of information, you know, be able to access um, all the data that's actually complying with policies that you set. You know, you want to make sure that your data is protected uh, from tools, uh, both both for the new data and also for arriving data that's in the system. Uh, and finally, at the end of the day, you also want to be able to figure out how is all this going, right? The monitoring and auditability aspects, whereby you want to be alerted for um, access requests and policy exceptions that may actually arise from users trying to access these data lakes uh, and that information, you know, review activity history, uh, and be able to get lots of details around changes, you know, and also better understand the lineage, in other words, you know, how has data changed over time? So all this really is uh, what um, LakeFormation is trying to actually empower you uh, to make you far more effective in doing all the really heavy, undifferent and heavy lifting. Uh, that's been just a, such a real pain and a huge time and investment. Yeah, probably I was going to say days here, but maybe weeks to months to set stuff like that up in a manual process. Mm. So in addition to supporting all the same ETL capabilities as Glue, LakeFormation introduces new ML transformations. So these features include a fuzzy logic blocking algorithm that can perform deduplication of data. For example, you know, this will allow you to deduplicate 400 million plus records in less than 2.5 hours, which is magnitudes better than earlier approaches. On the consumption side of things, you can use your third-party business apps like Tableau or QuickSight connect to connect into your AWS data sources through services like Athena or Redshift. Access to the data is managed by the underlying data catalog. So regardless of which application you use, you're sure that your data is governed and controlled. The ticket required for admission, and I guess a seat at the table for any solution today, Pete, is the entitlement of security and privacy of a platform. Let's pivot slightly and cover the security basics. And look, security is really critical uh, in everything we do, and in particular with your data, right? So security-wise, LakeFormation integrates with, uh, you know, the AWS Identity and Access Management Service, so you can authenticate users and roles uh, to be mapped to the uh, data policies that you've actually set in the data catalog. So the IAM integration uh, enables you also to use Microsoft Active Directory or perhaps uh, uh, other LDAP uh, identity stores uh, to federate into um, IAM using SAML. Uh, and that's that's access uh, to the data in a data lake, and it also protects your data by giving you a central location where you can uh, configure down to that fine grain uh, access policy that I was mentioned earlier, down to the field level to protect your data, regardless of which service uh, going to use it. And the other thing to also consider and remember is to uh, once this data is centralized, you want to have some policies. So Lake Formation first uh, uh, consider uh, shutting down direct access to your S3 buckets. So nobody can backdoor your data lake uh, and then use LakeFormation and configure your data protection and access policies within LakeFormation because in there it enforces access policies across all of your AWS services that are trying to access your data in your data lake. So once you've configured your users and roles and defined these data roles and what can be accessed down to the column 
you're then good to go. And also we're calling out that, uh, you know, Lake Formation currently supports server-side encryption on S3, as you probably remember, AES2-56 uh, and SSE on S3. Uh, it also supports private endpoints in your VPC and records all activity in AWS CloudTrail. So you, are, you have visibility into what's going on uh, so that you have complete network isolation and auditability, Shane, which is kind of key to, you know, protecting your, 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 your single view of a customer. Yeah, absolutely. Those, you know, core foundational services, I think, make AWS, AWS CloudTrail is such a staple and S3 with server-side encryption, really cool stuff. So, look, AWS Lake Formation is generally available today in EU Island, Asia-Pacific Tokyo, US East, North Virginia, US East Ohio, and US West Oregon. So, before we end the show, we had a raft of EC2 updates in August that we should motor through. Pete, when I say raft, I mean it. Like, how many updates do you think we're looking at here? There's, there's actually quite a few when I because I did look at them. I didn't count them all, but uh, it's about six, seven, eight, yeah, maybe. Well, look, the answer is seven, and we don't have too much time, so best we get cracking. And I will start with the first that we're going to dive into. Um, you know, these are just a blip, so kind of worth mentioning. And the first one is EC2 Hibernation is now available on Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. We all know what Hibernation is, and we all know what Ubuntu is. So next update, Amazon EC2 E3 EN, you know, those instances with blazingly fast IO and VME now with 100 gig based networking are now available in AWS GovCloud US West and Asia Pacific Singapore regions. Sticking with the same thread here, EC2 C5 12x large, C5 24x large and C5 metal instances are now available in the following additional regions, US East Ohio, US West North California, Canada Central and Asia-Pacific, Mumbai, and Tokyo regions. So that's three down, four to go. Let's bucket a few more up in one clump, Pete. So Shane, I remember we spoke about uh, RAM about five episodes ago. Uh, well, uh, this feature is uh, RAM, and RAM stands for Resource Access Manager. So uh, launched in, uh, in October, uh, EC2 On-Demand Capacity Reservation lets you reserve EC2 capacity for any duration, which means once you create a capacity reservation, the EC2 capacity is held for you regardless of whether you run the instance or not. And until now, capacity reservations were confined to a single AWS account. So with RAM, you can now share your uh, EC2 uh, on-demand capacity reservation with another Amazon account uh, that you own or within your AWS organization. And in this case, when a capacity reservation is shared, the EC2 instances launched by one AWS account utilize the EC2 capacity reservation of another account. Now, this feature is enabled by the AWS Resource Access Manager, as I just said before, which is a service that allows you to easily and securely share AWS resources across multiple accounts. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest with you here, Pete. You know, there is so many updates that we release here. I didn't even know this was a thing. You know, it's another lever and maybe a reserved instance may be suitable. But yes, I guess you can now allocate allocate capacity for on-demand instances and now cross-account. You know, I love RAM. It is an awesome handy tool. Indeed. Two updates here that relate to fleet. To level set EC2 fleet simplifies the provisioning of EC2 capacity across different EC2 instance types, availability zones, and on-demand reserved instance and spot purchase models. With a single API call, you can provision capacity across EC2 instance types and purchase models to achieve the desired scale and performance and cost. So what are the updates? Until recently, you could only add or remove spot instances in a running fleet, which meant if you wanted to scale on demand, a new EC2 fleet would have to be created. Starting earlier this month, 
Customers can now modify on-demand target capacity in a running fleet, which simplifies capacity provisioning and cost optimization across instances and purchase options. Secondly, and maybe we should have put this in the news with the price cuts, but you can now also provide a maximum total price for your EC2 fleet, enabling you to control the total price you pay per hour for the fleet of instances. So when you provide a maximum price, EC2 fleet will attempt to fulfill your desired capacity, but will stop provisioning instances before they exceed your maximum fleet price. In other words, you know, when using a maximum total price, EC2 fleet will stop fulfilling instances either when your target capacity or total price is met. A cool update here, Pete, but over to you for the seventh and final update. I can't believe we're talking seven updates here. I know, and we're, we're trying to rush through really quickly in the interest of time, but I just love the focus on, the, and I keep calling it, the cloud economics, right, where price dictates architecture. I love it. All right, so lucky number seven. So EC2 now offers a new capacity-optimized allocation strategy for provisioning of spot instances via EC2 autoscaling, EC2 fleet, and also for spot fleet. So the capacity-optimized allocation strategy uh, automatically makes the most efficient use of available spare capacity while still taking advantage of the steep discounts offered by spot instances. So one of the best practices for using EC2 spot um, effectively is to be flexible across a wide range of instance types. So when uh, customers configure the auto-scaling group, EC2 fleet or spot fleet, uh, to use multiple instance types with spot, they must choose a spot allocation strategy. So the spot strategy determines how the spot instances in your fleet are actually fulfilled from the spot instance pools that we actually have available. So the capacity optimized strategy automatically launches spot instances into the most available pools by looking at real-time capacity data and predicting which are the most available. So this works really well for workloads such as your big data and analytics or image and media, uh, rendering perhaps machine learning or other high-performance computing pro uh, applications that you're running, uh, which have a very very much a much higher cost of being interrupted. So by offering um, the possibility of fewer interruptions, the capacity-optimized strategy can now lower your overall cost for your workloads. Wow, that's a mouthful. But again, it's cloud economics, Shane. It is cloud economics. Let's, I think you've coined a new word here. <laughs> so on that note, Pete, I think that's a wrap for today. Today, we covered a round of updates that occurred in the month of August in the year 2019. Plus, we took a look at the SDLC or Software Development Lifecycle through the lens of Lambda. We riffed a little bit on 12-factor apps. We discussed trade-offs. In other words, you know, what you're getting and what you're losing with Lambda. We talked through the Lambda support policy and worked through three options in which you can manage deprecation of runtimes. And on the ECF front, we uh, now support multiple load balances. So you can now attach multiple target groups to your ECS services that are running either on EC2 directly or perhaps via managed containers in Fargate. Uh, this is quite a huge and a huge big win for our customers, we think. And also we talked about Data Lake, which is now uh, generally available. It's a new managed service to help you build a secure data lake in days, uh, hopefully even in hours, depending on the, on the scale you've got. And it allows you to uh, also you know, identify, ingest, clean, transform all of your data and also then enforce security policies across multiple services uh, that actually need to gain access uh, and manage those uh, via a single place. Yeah, and before closing the show off with a raft of EC2 updates, seven to be exact, some general updates, some around spot fleet and others around capacity optimization strategies for EC2. Pete, awesome. wow, yeah. Pete, awesome to have you here today with us. Um, you know, for you to impart your wisdom, listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome at awstechchat at amazon.com. We love a good feedback email. 
Join us again in two weeks' time, which we'll be back with a themed episode based on our backlog from you, the listener. So again, let us know what you'd like to hear about. But until next time, keep on building and keep on building. Bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.